So here's the big question. Is social justice heresy? Blogger and Christian activist Judy Wu Dominic notes that there's redundancy in the term social justice. Matters of justice, like matters of injustice, she says, are always social. Whether they involve two individuals, an individual in God, an entire community in God, or multiple groups of people. Theological arguments that attempt to frame social justice as a form of heresy operate under the assumption that gospel justice can only apply to injustice between individuals or between individuals and God, but not between groups of people. But, Ms. Dominic notes, we live in an endlessly complex matrix of systems, structures, sociopolitical realities, and economies. Christians must have a robust understanding of how fundamentally unjust our world is and how unjust we are by all our associations, or we won't know how to live in it. To grapple more with this topic, I called up my friend Andy M. Now, Andy is a leader, thinker, and theologian whose insights into political and theological issues I always find fascinating. He currently serves as the communications director for the Seventh-day Adventist Church's Michigan headquarters and the associate director for the Center for Adventist Ministry to Public University Students. Previously, he served as a theology professor at Weimar College in California. His educational background includes a degree in political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a theology degree from Southern Adventist University. In the conversation that follows, we discuss social justice as it relates to the Bible, economic justice, we touch on socialism and capitalism a little bit, and we talk about whether social justice will ultimately solve the world's problems and how Christians can live in the tension of looking forward to the second advent of Jesus while doing justice in the here and now. So let's just jump right into the the meat of this. Is is social justice a dirty word for Christians? First of all, I think it has become uh, a dirty dirty question depending on where you stand on it. Um, But I do believe in a very real and significant way that God is very concerned with social justice issues. I mean, we see that uh, very clearly in the life of Christ when he saw injustice. As a matter of fact, probably the most uncharacteristic act of Christ here on earth had to do with injustice. Uh, in the temple, where you had the, the church leadership, if you will, who were selling the animals, the sacrificial animals at a premium, and typically it was the, the poor and the needy who had to pay high prices. And, and of course, Jesus Christ um, addresses that issue, uh, rebukes the leadership. Um, and ultimately, uh, to me, that was a social justice issue. So I do believe there are biblical grounds for, um, for uh, social justice issues and that we need to be involved as Christians to, because, simply because we care for people. We care for uh, other people that are different from us. And so I do believe that Christians should be taking interest in social uh, justice issues. And how would you define social justice? Um, Well, very broadly, I would say that it's uh, the engagement of society or the political arena in order to move that given society from a state of injustice 
towards justice, and that could be through the legislative process. It could be through activism, through protest and boycott. Mm-hmm. I think the whole gamut. Um, so that's very simply how I would define it for our purposes in, in the way that secular society may, how they might view uh, social justice. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to read something to you from uh, the Reformed theologian and miss, missionary uh, Leslie Newbigin. He passed away a few years ago. Um, but he said, it is a terrible misunderstanding of the gospel to think that it offers us salvation while relieving us of responsibility for the life of the world, for the sin and sorrow and pain with which our human life and that of our fellow men and women are so deeply interwoven. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I find that as a, as a Christian, um, where where I, I feel like that definition that I just uh, kind of shared, mm-hmm. where I feel that it's deficient, is that when the Bible talks about justice, it assumes uh, God uh, in that context. So in other words, if you look at the minor prophets, for example, mm. uh, where, where injustices are, are met with, with justice and, and, and judgment by God, but you'll find there that the judgment uh, was founded on a ba- on the basis of a special revelation, or a thus saith the Lord, and the people that are being addressed in that context are God's covenant people who have very clearly violated uh, that covenant, and and so here God is is addressing uh, these matters uh, to his his given his people. Now that isn't to say that we as Christians can also address uh, injustices that are taking place in society, in, in secular society, or in, in various nation states around the world. Uh, we also see in, in the book of Amos where God does just that, and he, he has indictments that are met out uh, to the surrounding heathen nations. And so the church does, in fact, have something to say about the world broadly. But I, I, I feel like how it's defined broadly in our society, it doesn't take into consideration the biblical worldview and the biblical understanding and the context in which uh, justice is taking place uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, to give you an, another example of that, um, typically, you know, we, we think of justice and, and when we talk about social justice, a very temporal uh, aspect of justice mm-hmm. in the way society uh, um, deals with it. But in scripture, we can't, you know, we can't disconnect uh, the temporal justice from the eschatological or cosmic justice that's going to take place when, when Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. And so we can rest con- confidently in God that even though justice doesn't always take place here, that in the world to come, that, that God ultimately has um, his people in mind, and, and that will take place at that time. Mm, I like that, and I want to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes here. Let's sure. kind of, well, I want to ask you this, because I, I hear people who will say that social justice is not, you know, biblical in, in the, I guess, contemporary uh, 
sense and definition of social justice that it's not really God's plan because it's government coercing people to, let's say, redistribute wealth uh, to uh, forward you know, economic justice instead of uh, voluntary uh, charity. And um, so what do you think about that? I mean, is there any place for uh, Christians to support secular governments who say we want to um, promote economic justice, you know, and we could maybe define that a little bit more clearly at some point, but is there a place for that? Is it sinful? Is it wrong for a secular government to want to see economic justice? And I guess that would mean that some people are, um, you know, people are coerced in a way to give their money to help the poor. Is that something that uh, Christians should support, or is that something that's that's wrong? You know, uh, that's a question that could get me into some trouble, but I'll, I'll answer it uh, in this way. I, I don't feel, in my understanding, I don't believe that the, the economic structure uh, that a particular government decides upon uh, is inherently evil or bad, uh, simply because they decide to distribute some of the funds from the rich, let's say, and give it towards, you know, uh, those who are unfortunate or don't don't have the means to, to pay for health and that kind of thing. It's, it's interesting you ask that question because I was a couple, about a month or two ago, I was at a uh, at a big forum. Uh, t- uh, Tim Keller was there. Timothy Keller, you'll I'm sure you know the name. Yeah. He was he was sharing about some of these things, and the topic came up uh, where he, uh, individual came to him. He was a, a hardcore reformed Christian, you know, Republican, very conservative politically, and that sort of thing. And so he wanted to. This individual went to visit the bastion of of Calvinism and Reformed theology. I think he was in the Netherlands somewhere. Went out there. And found the you know in these villages and in, in these towns very hardcore uh, conservative reformed Christians, mm-hmm. but they were all socialists. Uh, you know they you know they they assume they have that style of government there. And this man, it dawned on this man, uh, and he later uh, shared this with Tim Keller that hey, you know. Um, a lot of the political ideology that I've associated with my religion, uh, he, he had to take a step backwards from that and, and question whether uh, he could really combine his religion with a, a political system. Hmm. And, um, and I think we need to be very thoughtful. If you look in the Old Testament, for example, there are certainly some some laws and paradigms there that you could call that you could call uh, or term uh, as socialism. You know, there was some redistribution that took place. You know, during the the jubilee, uh, you know, uh, slaves were returned, property was returned, and one of our founders uh, of the Adventist Church, in Ellen White, said that one of the reasons why God designed that economy is so that to, is to curve. Uh, the the accumulation of wealth and uh, and that sort of thing. So I don't I don't think it's inherently evil 
to dis- redistribute uh, wealth in a given society. And of course, that statement could get me in a lot of trouble. But <laughs> I think if we're very honest with ourselves and mm-hmm. we look at the Old Testament, we look at Scripture, we'll find that there's nothing inherently wrong with that. After all, God, God's own uh, design for ancient Israel in terms of their their economy was structured uh, in that way, so to speak. And so capitalism is not necessarily associated with Christianity in the Bible. Um, or let's put it this way, uh, capitalism isn't the only way that you know Christians can assume an economy ought to uh, operate. You know, socialism, or at least um, perhaps some form of that, uh, could also, we can see elements of that, I guess you could say, in some of these um, uh, paradigms that God had for ancient Israel. Absolutely. I mean, if I happen to live in one of those countries today, um, or let's just say you take a, a right-wing conservative individual and insert them in, in one of those countries, is he morally obligated to say no to the free health care, to the free education and, mm-hmm. and those things? I don't, I don't think there's any principle that would behoove him to say, I, re, I, I just can't take any of that. Um, at least I'm not aware of a principle that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's in violation there. And, and I think that's interesting because, yeah, you do look back at like Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15, where you have the laws that you referred to a minute ago for ancient Israel. And, well, I don't think either of us would argue that, let's say, any country ought to, you know, um, legislate those laws because they're in the Bible. Uh, I don't think it would be wrong for somebody or a government to say, hey, listen, you know, this is a really good idea. Let's take these principles and apply them. There's not there. There's you know they're not spiritual principles inherently. You know if you believe in like separation of church and state, like like I do, mm-hmm. but they are good ideas and they promote justice um, on a horizontal societal level. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because you you mentioned like the whole concept of um, we assume a certain political ideology just because of perhaps where we've grown up and we associate that with our our theology. But I think what I hear you saying is that um, sometimes those associations aren't necessarily biblical. Absolutely. Um, and I think we, re- we really need to be thoughtful about some of the, the beliefs and assumptions that we do have, especially as, as Americans, as, with the increasing polarization that's taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously good and bad to both sides of any debate or question. Sure. And if people want to argue about political ideology on its own merits, that's great, but uh, don't bring the Bible into it if it's not actually based on the Bible, right? Absolutely. So, go ahead. No, I just think that word, for example, freedom Mm -hmm. has been abused. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want the government, you know, uh, taking control of my health care. I want that. I want to have the freedom. Well, what does that that mean? you know, the government, if they offer you, let's say, health care for free, um, uh, on the one hand, how does that violate your, your freedom? Uh, a lot of, you know, and, and the assumption there is, well, you know, I want to have the right to choose, you know, what doctor or, or whatever. Well, the, the problem is that the exorbitant prices of, of health care today does not, it, it makes it nearly impossible for the common average everyday person to, to pay for health care. So there's very little freedom. I mean, if you can't purchase health care, 
because of its exorbitant prices, you're not free to do it. And so the government stepping in to say, hey, there's an issue with the pharmaceutical companies and the way that the healthcare system is working in this country has made it so that the prices are, are super inflated. And if the government were to step in and to say, hey, we, we want to help our people and, and thus we're going to uh, step in and, and, and whatever, um, I, don't, I don't see anything inherently wrong with that. Um, in fact, it but, seems like that is what a moral government ought to do, right? I mean, if, if a government's trying to be, you know, promoting justice in, in its, uh, in its territory, it seems like, you know, they ought to be saying, Hey, well, how can we, how can we do this? If people are actually, you know, dying for, let's say lack of healthcare. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't fault somebody for thinking that a government, a moral government ought to be involved with that. You know? Yeah. Well, people don't question, for example, the military. Right. Sure, sure. Protect life. And, you know, healthcare serves a very similar purpose to, to protect life. And and it's very arbitrary to say, well, it's it's okay with the military, but it's not okay with health, or mm-hmm. it's okay with the postal service, but it's not okay with, with this other thing. I I have always felt that we're very arbitrary. There's no rhyme or reason for why we select one thing as okay for the government to do and not and not the other. And healthcare and the military might be an example of that. Now I've heard some people say that this is the church's job. The church needs to be taking care of people in society, uh, you know, with with their money and and maybe helping people with healthcare. I've even had some people say, well, back before, you know, FDR and the New Deal, the church was was doing a great job. They were taking care of society, and then you know the government stepped in, and and now there's no more incentive for the church to do that. Um, what, what do you think about that that argument, especially considering that today, you know, we are a um, very large society, you know, millions and millions of people living here, let's just say in the United States, if we're talking about this particular society. Um, you know, what do you think about this concept that the church, I guess, meaning, you know, denominations and, and congregations locally ought to be tasked with this, this gigantic job of basically taking care of people that, that uh, need care, the poor, the suffering, those who need health care, that kind of thing? You know, the, the short answer to that is, is very simply, um, you know, the, the church today um, lacks the means, the finances, uh, to really take care of all the citizens in this country. Um, I don't think it's outside the realm of the government to to, to assess its citizens and its, the state of its citizens and to implement plans that could better the lives of individuals in whatever capacity. I mean, you know, we elect our, our uh, government leaders and we, we have certain um, assumptions that, they, that they're going to do a good job, that they'll be fair and equitable and, and that sort of thing. So I don't I don't think it's um, outside of the responsibility, or I do feel it's the responsibility of the government uh, to also look out for its citizens and to um, deal with injustices that that take place on a day-to-day level. I don't think I don't know if I'm answering your question there. I just I just don't I just don't see um, I just don't yeah. No, I hear you. And I, I think you are answering the question. It, it seems like perhaps in a, 
a very uh, like a smaller society where things are very simple. Um, maybe that would work, you know, sure. The church can be tasked with that. I remember I was a pastor, um, in a, um, kind of an inner city church, uh, for a while in Sacramento, um, downtown church. And we had homeless people, people coming off the street, frequently coming to our doors and we would help them as we could. But unless we were to make that our focus on almost a full-time basis, we really couldn't meet the need just in that one little area, that one part of the city. And so there are organizations that do that. Some of them receive government's, you know, grants and, and there are governmental organizations that help with that. And I'm, ha- I'm, I'm thankful for that because uh, just seeing on a uh, small scale basis, how that w- wouldn't work actually, you know, leads me to believe that if we were to try to give that job to the local church, um, I don't think the local church would be able to take care of, of that responsibility. And so I'm, I'm glad that there's a, a focus on some of that in the government. Now, to what extent that ought to be, you know, I, I think there's, there's room for debate. Is that, is, uh, is the welfare programs that we are, they, are the welfare programs we have in place, are they always run efficiently? Um, is there fraud sometimes? Sure. Right. Uh, but, uh, those are bigger questions than just, I guess the, the baseline question of should the government be involved in this at all? And I think that we're both agreeing that there is a place for that. Yeah. And and one of the challenges is, you know, the perceptions that Christians have uh, of the poor. Uh, You know, there's many Christians, if you ask them today that the poor are poor because they're lazy or they don't work hard enough or, or what have you. And if you have those type of uh, perceptions of those on the margins, then you're going to be less apt to to help uh, those kinds of people. And so we have, at least in this country, uh, the tendency, uh, you know, things are very political. Everything is so political, politicized mm-hmm. that even even the poor are, are, are not seen in the light, in the biblical light. You know, the, the Bible speaks very clearly that the poor will always be with us and that one of the uh, obligations of Christians is to help the poor and needy. And yet, at least in this country, we're seeing a shift in, in perceptions and how we view uh, immigrants and, and the poor and, and that type of thing. And so it's becoming very challenging in today's context for the Christian church to even uh, be proactive when it comes to uh, some of these concerns. And, and that's a challenge. You know, I've heard that argument that the Bible says the poor will always be with you uh, to almost be used to say, well, then we don't have to worry about the poor. Um, but if you read that, that passage in context, um, I think that first appears in, in Deuteronomy, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, it's, it's interesting. In fact, I have my Bible open to Deuteronomy 15 right here. And let me just read that. Um, this is Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1. It says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. I mean, that's talk about a socialistic concept. If, if you want to apply a modern you know, political term to it, that, that is definitely socialistic, right? You're, you know, the government is saying um, everybody's debts are forgiven um, every seven years. And, and think if we did that today in our society, that'd be pretty radical, right? Um, and then it goes on to say, this is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Um, going down to verse four, it says, however, there, there will be no poor among you 
since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, if only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I am commanding you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you. You will lend to many nations. You will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. And then he goes on down to actually talk about, um, in verse 11 of that same chapter, listen to this, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. (laughs) So on one hand, it says there will be no poor among you if you follow this. But going down a few verses, it's like, well, there will always be poor around for you to help, though. So I, I think in, in the context, like Jesus uses this, of course, later on, right, to say there will always mm-hmm. be poor among you after Judas rebukes Mary Magdalene for anointing his feet. And and it's interesting because I actually think the context of that isn't that God wants there to be poor around, right? And I think you would agree with that. He wants sure. us to help the poor so there won't be poor, but yet that you know condition will always be, a, always be a, there for us to help. That's right. And, and, you know, probably, or I would suggest that one of the reasons why um, there will always be the poor among us is that it it teaches us when we, when we serve the poor and help them. But as a matter of fact, uh, Matthew chapter 25, I mean, one of the conditions for being on the right side of the second coming itself Mm-hmm. is in the fact that we're uh, helping the poor, visiting those in the prisons, uh, the orphans and the, and the needy and, and that type of thing. And so unless we're doing uh, these things to the least of these, my brethren, as, as Jesus commanded, um, we're, we're not going to be on the right side of the second coming. And, and I would go even further to say, uh, can you really call yourself a, a, a true Christian? Um, in in uh, thought and deed and and so forth. So those are those are the type of things that I think every Christian needs to sit down and and really uh, look at themselves in the mirror. So let's let's kind of pivot here a little bit. And we've been talking about justice in society, um, and and more specifically about like economic justice. Um, but. You and I are both Christians. We actually are both uh, Seventh-day Adventist Christians as well. And we'll talk a little bit about why I mentioned that um, in a few minutes as far as the kind of like the beliefs of the Adventist church in, in this regard. But um, as, as Bible-believing Christians, do you believe, Andy, that, you know, passing some laws that, you know, let's say help the poor or whatever the issue might be, the social justice, is, is that really going to solve society's problems? What is the ultimate solution to our world's problems from your perspective? Well, the, the cosmic solution, of course, uh, is the, the return of Jesus where um, God is going to set everything right. And so the way that I, I kind of see things, uh, you know, you have, uh, you have four, distinct events that have taken place in, in biblical history. Of course, you have the creation, you have the fall, uh, and then, of course, the cross and the redemption, and then the ultimate restoration of, of this world. And a lot of the problems that we see today are a result of the fall of Adam and Eve and what they have passed on uh, to, uh, you know, their posterity. And so they have passed on the the result or the impact of sin upon human nature. We're all born depraved. You know, the Apostle Paul describes us as as children of wrath by nature. 
And so ultimately, when you have people who are unconverted, who could care less about God or, or uh, you know, good, you know, in the pure and the good, uh, uh, you, because that condition uh, exists in this world and prevails in this world, we're always going to have some level of suffering and pain and injustice. So ultimately, all of that is going to be solved uh, in the second coming, at least from the biblical or Christian uh, worldview. And the gospel is is really the indiscriminate good news of God uh, that is uh, that serves as a remedy for sin and the impact of sin upon humanity. And and that's that's ultimately God's plan of restoring uh, us to a place uh, to conditions that existed before the fall. Should Christians can, can be concerned then about the present world? If if our goal is to look forward to this this new world that's coming, you know, Jesus is going to come back and make everything right. Um, should we even care about the here and now? I mean, we're just trying to get through this to get to that, aren't we? Absolutely. I, you know, I alluded to the fact that we should be concerned because of, once again, Matthew 25, Jesus makes it clear uh, what our obligations are to the unfortunate, the poor and the needy. But with that said, you know, um, one of the things that I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm a Korean I was born in this country, but I'm Korean. And one of the things that's very popular with Koreans, uh, I don't know if you've done this before, Steve, it's called the Jinjobang. It's like a Hmm. spa where uh, you go in and there's all these hot rooms and you can sweat out your impurities. But one of the things they do uh, there is they'll scrub all the dead skin off of you, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's probably the most, the the cleanest that I've ever been in my life is, is when I go into those places. So they they get this like this this uh, I don't know it's this rough pad and they just start scraping your body if you will wow. and they literally take off rolls of dead skin wow. off your body. Now I may be doing that let's say on a Saturday on a Sabbath night or on a Sunday, mm-hmm. but that doesn't discount the fact that I need to take a shower uh, every day. Uh, uh, from today to that point. And so just because God is going to make things all good again doesn't lessen my obligation to do my part on a micro level on a day-to-day basis. And so, yes, we're, we're happy and we can rest confident that God is going to take away and wipe away all pain and all tears, but that does not negate my obligation to do what I can. You know, a, a really a sermon that impacted me some years ago. Uh, his name is David Asherick. He preached a sermon called "Stir What You Got," hmm. and we all have. Uh, you know, the point of the sermon was um, we need to do our daily duties that God presents to us on an everyday level, however small or big that might be. Um, I was I was talking to one of my friends, actually mutual friends. His name is Israel. He he was talking about a sermon he's going to present at, at GYC this year, mm-hmm. and and a very interesting title. He entitled it uh, "Great is the Enemy of Good," mm-hmm. and so we're all looking to do these great things to post. Uh, some post on on social media and get thousands of hits. We're we're wanting all the attention. We're wanting to do all these great things, mm-hmm. and yet we're failing to do the everyday good things uh, uh, that no one notices. And I, I feel like the true believer, the true Christian, 
He's not concerned about these major titles behind his name and the letters to, to make a big splash. He's going to, he or she is going to uh, relieve um, any injustice where he, see, he or she sees it. And, and to me, that is true Christianity. And you see that reflected in the life of Jesus. He was constantly turning attention away from, from people who are wanting to, to make him king, to make a big splash in society. But yet he, he was never too big to think, hey, I need to help that Syrophoenician woman. Mm-hmm. I need to help that, that, that man who can't walk, the blind. Mm-hmm. And of course, then you had flocks of people coming to him as a result of those individual um, uh, acts of love that he was engaged with on a day-to-day basis. So, so you know, to do great things, it's not a bad thing, but if you're doing good things just simply for the sake of attention, I think that's where, uh, you know, we get into trouble. I like that. And, and just to point out, you mentioned Matthew 25. I think that's such a powerful passage. And it's interesting that the people in Matthew 25, none of them recognize that they have been doing these things for Jesus. At least he asked them, you know, or he said, you know, didn't you, they asked Jesus, when did we see you, right? Poor, imprisoned, et cetera. And he said, you, and when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And it, I guess what it points out for me is that what they're really doing is they're just operating from this principle of selfless love, right? And, um, and that's really what the gospel does. It changes us so that our goal is not so much to, how can I save myself, it's just that we operate out of a principle of love and it, it just spills out to the society around us and, mm. and, and makes society better, right? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I think of, for example, the story of, of the resurrection of Lazarus. You know, Jesus knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus. This probably one of the most controversial acts of Jesus because we know from that point onward, they, they were very intentionally attempted to make plans to, to kill uh, mm-hmm. Christ. And, and, and so Jesus knew that he was going to resurrect Lazarus, but that didn't prevent him from also crying. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Mm. It takes place within the context of, of Lazarus's death. And so just because we know something is going to happen in the future doesn't take away our, our feelings and our obligations and, and, and that type of thing, our sympathies for, for the human plight that we face on, uh, that we face on a day-to-day level. Mm. So that would be an example of that. Now, you know, as I was kind of thinking about this conversation that we were going to have, you know, you think of that text and I don't know it off the top of my head where, where the man comes to, to Jesus and, and requests that he, um, uh, you know, help him in in dividing the inheritance of his brother that he felt mm-hmm. rightfully also he had a portion to, and of course Jesus doesn't um, address that or he doesn't solve that that issue for the man, mm-hmm. and so that that text and I don't know what you what you think about uh, if you've considered that text much, but you know it does give me some pause as to you know why didn't Jesus do that and mm-hmm. and i i feel like we we do need to study all of all of you know uh the bible to get a more comprehensive view as to how we should deal with certain items and when we should mm-hmm. insert ourselves and and perhaps in case in other instances where we we might not 
Um, I don't believe there is a one-size-fits-all. Uh, like, for example, if you're a practicing attorney, you know, you have you're, – you're in a place where you have – you know, you can make an impact – on some of these issues in, in, a, in a way that I can't, uh, working for the church. Um, in, in some ways, I don't have those same opportunities. And, and yet, I'm not saying I don't have uh, an obligation, but I, I believe there are differences in terms of responsibilities and roles. And, and I feel like in that passage, some of, that, some of those assumptions uh, probably uh, are could be incorporated into why Jesus didn't address that specific issue. Sure. Yeah, and and that would be an interesting discussion to have. You know, I think that does bring up some questions like, you know, did Jesus come down to solve all of society's problems? I think the obvious answer is, uh, well, at least in the here and now, or the then and there, no. But um, let's just for a moment, before we wrap it up here, um, talk about... I mentioned earlier, we both are Seventh-day Adventist um, Christians, and um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a, a long history of being involved in societal justice issues. Um, and let's talk about some of those just briefly for a moment, because I think that kind of is an interesting discussion to have, even with what you just brought up about Jesus and his refusal to get involved in that particular justice issue. You know, this guy says, hey be the arbiter, arbitrator here for me. Jesus is like, no, that's not my job. I'm here to do bigger things than that or different things than that. Um, but is there a time for, for Christians to get involved? And we've already discussed this and we've, we've agreed that there is. How have the Adventists done that historically? Yeah, well, um, I think it's very well documented that um, many of our leading founders of the church, including uh, Ellen White, uh, Joseph Bates, Jane Andrews, uh, James White, John Loughborough, there, and there are others who lambasted the some of the policies uh, of the U- United States for its involvement with with slavery, mm-hmm. for example. Of course, uh, I mentioned Ellen White being one of the founders. She also uh, was very vocal on alcohol and the sale and distribution of, of alcohol. And mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, in, in some instances, she had mentioned that uh, that even on the Sabbath, which is our day of, of holiness and rest, she's, she goes on to say that even on the Sabbath, uh, we are to go and vote for some of these these initiatives. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a perfect example where, where civic, civic responsibility intersects with spiritual responsibility. And so, uh, and then... One other last example, you had uh, A.T. Jones, Alonzo T. Jones, who went before Congress to speak out against um, uh, a Sunday law that was being entertained in in Congress to obligate uh, everyone in this country to reverence Sunday as a holy day. And so certainly Adventists have been involved uh, in the, you could even call it the political realm, and certainly uh, have addressed governments, and, and they were uh, very much involved uh, back in the day. I don't know why we don't see that as much today, um, but that's something that, that should be discussed and talked about. And I think with our involvement regarding abolitionism, I mean, it was, it was huge. It was a big part of, of who the Adventist Church was when it began. I mean, most of the early mm-hmm. Adventist believers were, were involved in the abolitionist movement, um, and in fact, to the point that Ellen White would 
uh, right, I believe that you know if you're a sympathizer with with the South and with slavery, um, you know it's it's hard to be a Christian and be a sympathizer with the South. That was pretty much you know the gist of what what she wrote, and and so yeah, these are interesting things. Like, how do we do that today? How are we involved in these issues? How should we be involved with these issues? Um, and I you know as as Adventists, another facet of our um, our church, something that we've been really focused on is prophecy. And, um, and, and the book of Revelation, chapter 13 specifically, uh, talks about what Adventists have interpreted as the United States um, being the first beast of Revelation, or I'm sorry, the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, the first being uh, the papacy. And it's interesting how, you know, you read Revelation 13 and, and, no matter what you think about it and what it means, there's clearly some coercion going on there. Um, there's society, the world being told to worship uh, something that is not God. And basically there's false worship being promoted. And, um, and early Adventists understood that the second beast of uh, Revelation chapter 13 that had two horns like a lamb but spoke as a dragon um, representing the United States. And one of the ways that they knew that was because of the United States, um, support of slavery, actually, you know, as far as the speaking like a dragon part, as well as what they believe to be a future, uh, authoritarian, uh, tendency to enforce false worship. So these are just interesting things to think about, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, you look at some of the policies with, uh, immigrants, and, um, and that sort of thing is obviously a big discussion in this country. And I think you could even include uh, that discussion uh, and, and put it alongside the whole slavery issue as far as the modern day um, application of the second be beginning to speak as a, as a dragon. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't be many, if you talk to most Adventists today, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you that we are approaching the end of time. And you can't be approaching the end of time and have that assumption without there being a, a very clear indication that that second beast power is also speaking as a dragon. Well, in what, in what kind of type of ways is it speaking as a dragon? And I don't think it would be a stretch to uh, state that some of the policies that we're seeing, and I'm not just you know referring to this current administration, but mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. over the past. A uh, few decades, we're, we're seeing the government um, doing things that they would never have thought of doing in terms of violating privacy rights, and sure. in terms of uh, the military context and drone bombings and, and that sort of thing. Sure. So I think we need we do need to take an, a very honest look at some of these things as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And, and we both say that, um, at least I'll speak for myself, and I, know, I think you would say this as well, as, as patriotic Americans, um, realizing, though, that America, um, although it, it's got some amazing aspects, it's, it's the greatest country on earth from so many perspectives, um, sure. the Bible predicts that, unfortunately, uh, we're going to give up some of those, those principles that have made us great. That's right. One of the things and that I wanted to also mention, if we're also Advent or uh, honest with ourselves, you know, back um, back in the day, uh, back Adventists were were barred from our our 
our schools and hospitals and churches. So we, we as Seventh-day Adventists also do not have a squeaky, squeaky clean mm-hmm. record mm-hmm. in terms of, of how we have handled some of these things. And I do believe that respect for this country, which we ought to have, and respect for the laws of the land uh, had something to do with that. And, and, the, and that's one of the big challenges today, you know, especially as it relates to immigration policies. Uh, you know, we're trying to follow follow the letter of the law, but at what point do we say, you know what, this law is is just going too far, has gone too far, and I cannot I cannot uh, conscientiously abide by it. Um, and and our respect for the law and and our respect for God's laws and 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 that kind of thing. Sometimes there's some tension there. And uh, the question is, is at what point do we begin to dis to speak up if if there is a need to do that, and I don't I don't have all the answers to that. I I'm still really wrestling with a lot of these things, and and I am praying for for increasing revelation on on some of these matters. Andy, it's been really good to talk to you today. And uh, what we'll do is when you figure out the answers to these questions, we're going to have you back here, and you can tell us tell us what you figured <laughs> out. How about that? So sounds, that sounds good. Thanks so much, Andy. <laughs> Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me once again. I really appreciate all that you're doing. Thanks for listening to Do Justice. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate the Do Justice podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Do Justice Now.